Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. The FDA has just given emergency authorization for the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, which like the Moderna one is an mRNA vaccine. This authorization comes in the wake of a punishing wave of infections, hospitalizations, and death as COVID is on the rampage across the globe. But the highest rates of infection and deaths are in the United States. California is once again on lockdown. Today, we're going to talk to Irv Wiseman, director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine, disclosure, he's my brother, about the science and politics of vaccines. Consider this a primer on vaccines in general and COVID in particular, and we get answers to questions about how the new COVID vaccines work, what makes them revolutionary, and what obstacles, structural, political, and scientific need to be understood and possibly pushed out of the way. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have my brother, Irv Wiseman, back with us. We're going to talk about the politics and science of vaccines. Irv is the director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine, and he was previously the head of the immunology program and the Cancer Center. He's widely recognized as a stem cell pioneer and the first scientist to purify blood-forming stem cells in both mice and humans. He's not a virologist. He's not a vaccinologist, but this is a topic that he knows pretty well, and he has an incredible ability to explain it to us, which is the reason why I wanted him on with us today to get behind this story. So, Irv Weisman, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks. Just to begin, you know, the news this morning is that the FDA has finally given emergency authorization to the Pfizer vaccine for COVID, which, like Moderna, is an mRNA vaccine. And really, I guess before we get into almost anything else, we want to know, you know, what these vaccines can do and what they can't and what makes them revolutionary. So let's just start with that and see where we go. So why don't we start with what vaccines were at the beginning. They were the isolated microbes, which you could then select for one that grew that didn't cause disease or caused little disease. And then you would infect the person way back in the uh, time of vaccinia, and they would make an immune response. The immune response would come from that part of the immune system that makes specific antibodies that could bind to the virus and prevent the virus from binding to a cell that it infects and gets inside the cell and takes over the cell's machinery to make virus instead of whatever the normal cell cell normally did. I was Um, like polio and all the other vaccines, right? Oh, yeah, and way before that. This goes back a long ways. And then the kinds of vaccines one could make after that would be the proteins themselves that make up the outer shell of the virus, any virus or any bacteria 
or a toxin like diphtheria toxin. But the main point, get antibodies made. Now, when a virus infects a cell, it can hide inside that cell. So even if there are antibodies, they can't come through and get inside the cell to neutralize the virus. So another aspect of our immune system is called the T cell. T stands for thymus because they are born in the thymus gland, which is just above your chest. And I'll just say for anybody listening, it's a myth that the thymus goes away after puberty. It's always there. It just works at a low level. And we'll get to why in a minute. But the T cells are specialized to avoid all of the kind of radar smokescreen of the virus that's in the blood or in the tissue and hone in on the infected cell. So they can recognize a little piece of a viral protein, really tiny piece, that gets presented by the cell on its surface to say, I'm infected. And now the T cell that's specific for it binds to it and either causes a walling off called inflammation or a direct killer T cell that kills the virus infected cell and the virus can't exist and make more virus unless it can co-op the machinery of a cell inside the cell. So those are the two major aspects of immunity that will last for life. Now those cells, those lymphocytes, one set that, as I said, is, makes T cells, the other set that makes antibody, the antibody one's called the B cell. And that's because it's born in the bone marrow. And it has displayed on its surface the actual combining site for measles virus envelope or SARS virus envelope or any of those little tiny things. And when they're correctly stimulated by a vaccine or an infection, they divide and then they turn into factories that make 30,000 antibody molecules per cell per second. This is massively important. So those antibodies go out into the bloodstream and they bathe not only in the blood, but every space in between cells in the body. So any free virus will be neutralized if your antibody is of the right type. Now, both T cells and B cells are kind of like stem cells because they have one of the cells they are called stem memory or memory cells. So you got measles infection or measles vaccine in your youth. You're immune to measles for your life. It doesn't mean that you have lots of antibody in your serum, or lots of active T cells, you have memory T cells and memory B cells. And because the very first time you got the infection or were vaccinated, you went from one of those per 100,000 lymphocytes to one of those per 1,000 lymphocytes, so 100 to 1,000-fold expanded, those Cells that last after the infection's gone, after the vaccine is worn out, are the memory T and B cells. So that the next time the infection comes in, you have a thousand times the number of absolutely specific T cells and B cells. And within just a few days, 
they mount a response that stops the infection. You don't even know you're infected. So that's the basis of vaccination. Now, whether you had an attenuated virus that doesn't kill that becomes the vaccine or a subunit killed virus or the proteins of the virus. And let's think for a second, the Salk vaccine and the Sabin vaccine, because this is what stopped polio on earth. Salk's was the first vaccine. He found a way to inactivate the virus so it was no longer infectious. And then you inject the inactivated virus under the skin and you make antibodies and T cells. Sabin looked for a polio virus that could infect cells but couldn't cause polio. And back in the days he did it, it was by chance. He just selected without knowing which genes he had to modify to make it less virulent or less disease causing. Now, they put that virus, an active virus, a live virus, into a sugar cube. And so you ate the sugar cube, the virus was released in the mouth, released in the throat, released in the stomach, released in the intestines, and now you have an infection by the natural root of infection and spread, a poliovirus. And you made antibodies and T cells. But the difference between the salt virus going in the arm and the Sabin virus going in the mouth is that the T and B lymphocytes that were stimulated and specific for the virus are local to the nose, the throat, the mouth, the stomach, and so on. Those lymphocytes get activated in the centers where they can manufacture their antibodies and memory cells and active T cells. And then they have what's called homing receptors. So they re-enter the blood and they home back to where they were immunized. Now, actually, my lab with Bernard Holtzman and Gene Butcher discovered the homing receptors that take those cells, if you're infected in the nose, those antibody forming or those T cells back just under the surface of the nose. And here's where it gets really tricky, but really important to know. The antibody forming cells that have just come back to be under the surface of the nose make a special kind of antibody that gets transported through the cells that are on the surface of the nose inside the nasal cavity, okay? And the antibody gets secreted there, and now it gets dissolved in your spit and your nasopharyngeal fluid and your gastrointestinal fluid, and it neutralizes any virus that's there. The immunization in the arm doesn't make cells at home to the nose, throat, mouth. And so you would be lucky if something happened to get the immune response to protect those surfaces. Okay, so now just remember that. But that's the basic biology of immunization, vaccination, and long-term memory. Now, when people started to use the tools of molecular biology, they could see with the first isolation of SARS-CoV-19, 
the Chinese immediately published the sequence. They didn't hold back. They weren't secretive. Any fool could look at that sequence and say, well, I could either try to find a virus and grow the virus and then try to inactivate it and so on, or to make the proteins from the virus, or I could make what's called the messenger RNA that codes for the outer spikes of the virus. So now if you look in the electron microscopic view of the virus, it's a sphere, but it's got these spikes. And the spikes are called the spike or S protein. And at the very end of the spike protein, it has attachment sites for cells in the lungs, the nose, the mouth, blood vessels throughout the body. And that allows the virus to get in. So you want to have your neutralizing antibody against the spike protein. If you want T cells, you want it against all the viral proteins because the virus will get in and hide itself inside the cell. And then you want T cell immunity that could attack any protein made by the virus that the cell says, I'm infected. Okay? So you want to have that. Now, the tools of molecular biology, which led to people being able to make messenger RNAs in massive levels allows production of proteins in massive levels. So the technology of synthesizing RNA molecules went from being very expensive and very difficult through work, largely by Lee Hood's lab, another Montanan, to make this the synthesizer and the sequencer. It was found by a number of people who would make the messenger RNAs and then encapsulate them in a fatty coat that binds to and fuses to the cell it infects, allowing the RNA to go in, that the natural messenger RNA or the natural viral RNA that would encode a protein that is the spike protein would induce a response within that cell to get rid of the virus. And the proteins that get rid of the virus called interference proteins are interferons. And you interfer A, B, and G, alpha, beta, gamma, at least. They cause inflammation, bring in lots of cells and inflammatory to wall off the system. But inflammation getting out of control can be very bad. And the bad thing for the messenger RNA that you just got into the cell is it degrades the RNA right away. So the cell Mm. protects itself. So the real question is, could you turn the RNA that you synthesize into one that couldn't be degraded, that wouldn't turn on the interferon signal? And the guy who had the idea about that was Derek Rossi, who did his postdoc in my lab until about 2003 or four or five. Can I just interrupt for one second, Herb Wiseman, because I'll just let the listeners know that there's a fascinating article in the Boston Review that I read that kind of tells this entire story of Derek Rossi's discovery and the Hungarian before him, Kariko, I think is her name, and how, you know, as you go on, because you're explaining this story, I want to also 
ask you to like explain how important it was to figure out a way to get this mRNA into the cell. In other words, to cover it with a lipid or a fat, as you said, because, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking of your own research about, you know, the way that the cells protect themselves, have some form of don't eat me. I'll just leave it there because I know you can explain all of it. Sure. So anyway, as on a side, just to tell you, when a virus infects the cell, turns on this interferon response, Part of the way it protects itself against the big eating cells, scavenger macrophages, is to put on the don't eat me signal. The don't eat me signal is one that we've turned into make antibodies to block it into a therapeutic that is now widely out there in late stage clinical trials. It's leading to cures in leukemia and mild dysplastic syndrome and lymphoma. I'll stop there. I'll come back to it, but I'll, I'll tell you more about that role in the infection. But the story that Derek Rossi, having read this Hungarian woman's paper that everybody ignored, drove her out of science, essentially. Mm. He said, you know, I think that I could use that to make messenger RNA, which I then blast into cells to get it in. It's called electroporation. But you can't do that for a vaccine you're going to distance. And so he called me when he had it. And he says, I got this. It seems to be working. What's the first experiment we should do? And so we talked about an experiment about doing it in cells that we would eventually want to put back in the body. So we wanted to make sure those cells lived better, like blood-forming stem cells. But we didn't want to put the genes in for it to live better because almost all the genes that help live better can also lead to cancer. And the gene being DNA would be there. And if you had billions of cells, the chance you would get a cancer would be pretty good. So if you put the RNA in, this special modified RNA, and I'll get to how we modify it, it had to be a way that it wouldn't stimulate the interferon response it wouldn't lead to the enzymes that could degrade the RNA. So those are absolutely critical things. And it couldn't be made into a DNA copy that would insert in the chromosome and later cause a disease. So despite the dispute that you'll read in that Boston article or Stat Magazine article, that's where it was, yeah. That Derek didn't think of it. It's both he thought of all of these things. And he and I were discussing at least the ones relevant to what we would do with them. There will be a story about how Moderna, the company, was formed and how we developed and so on. That's beyond this. But suffice it to say that when they formed the company Moderna, modifying RNA, they put in the elements of the RNA called nucleosides. So... These are the adenosine, uridine, guanine, cytosine, which are the building blocks for RNA, and their homologous building parts for DNA is adenosine, thymidine instead of uridine, guanosine, cytosine, slightly different. And all kinds of biological molecules have which are called L-form, left-handed, and R-form, right-handed. Almost all amino acids, nucleosides, all the components are L-form. 
So they said, could we get the same kind of coding to make a protein by putting in some modified RNAs like R-forms? And as they went through it empirically, he and his postdoctoral fellow at the time, Luigi Warren, and they'd met actually in my lab and went to Boston together, they actually found a way to get it in without inducing the interferon response with it being able now to encode a protein. So of all the possibilities that Moderna could do, vaccination was just one of them. Now, if you think about it, if your vaccine is a protein and you inject that protein just by itself, it doesn't make more protein. So you got to put just the right amount in to stimulate that immune response. When you put in the RNA that gets inside the cells, it continues to make protein, many, many, many rounds of protein for every single RNA molecule. So you've amplified the ability to get more protein. And that probably explains why they're getting such a healthy immune response by these vaccinations. So it has worked out, luckily, that it did so. And I noticed in passing that the uh, president of Moderna had worked in a French company, the Miriu company. I know them well because they were historically not only the group would, that would get out and save proteins like fetal bovine serum or, or human serum and so on, but they became the vaccine experts with the practicalities of it. So he probably brought, I'm guessing, brought that with him just to focus on what proteins to do. And as Derek said, the woman who first thought it might be an important thing to do, that was as fundamental as anything and prize-worthy as this would work out. So now, everybody's going out and getting vaccines. Back in early March, when I saw what kinds of vaccines they were making. And are you talking about any of the vaccines or Moderna in particular? I'm talking about Moderna with RNA. Pfizer. Pfizer with RNA. (laughs) And all of the others with proteins or even attenuated viruses. Okay. All of them were going to inject it into the arm. But we knew from studies with, for example, influenza, you can make the influenza vaccine to go into the arm, or you can make it into an aerosol that you spray into the nose. Now, if you're the person on the end getting the vaccine, a little spray into the nose is not so bad as a long needle going into your arm. And it's more than that. In all of the experiments and testing, if you spray it in the nose, you do activate the lymphocytes that using the homing receptor that our group found, take it back to the right place. So in March, I organized the section of immunology and the section of virology to have discussions around just these points. What are the barriers and what are the problems to overcome the COVID vaccine? 
These were the National Academy of Sciences. So these are purportedly the leaders of the field. And much to my unhappiness, those great labs that were doing the testing for New York and others, they were converting their labs to testing. Was there an immune response? What kind of immune response just looked at the serum? And so they wouldn't see that special antibody. Now I'm going to call that antibody by a name. It is Ig for immunoglobulin. All antibody proteins are immunoglobulins A. And A can be in the blood, and it looks like that. It has two arms to it, or it could be secreted from under the mucosa through the epithelial cell that has the secretory protein to attach to it and put it out. The one that's secreted not only has IgA, but it has a connector called the joining piece, which was discovered by Bunny Koshland at UC Berkeley, a PhD scientist, great, great scientist. That dimeric, two joined together, IgA antibodies is the only form that can be secreted. So no matter how much antibody IgA you get from injecting in your arm, it won't get into the secretions and therefore likely won't neutralize the virus unless something else happens that we don't yet understand. So what does that mean? It means that if you have a vaccine that's 95% effective to prevent you from getting the disease, it will prevent you from getting the disease because the lung, the primary site of infection, the blood vessels, which lead to clotting, another site where the infection is bad, the kidney, another site where the infection is bad, something happening in the brain real bad. All of those things you're protected against inside the body, but you're not making the secreted antibody to go up into what we call the nasal mucosa, the nasopharynx. So it is theoretically possible, especially right now during the vaccination period, that you will be able to be infected, but you won't get the disease. But insofar as the site of infection is the nose, throat, and mouth, and <coughs> when you cough, the site of spread is the nose, throat, and mouth, you're a danger to anybody who's not vaccinated or anybody who is old and the vaccine may not work so well. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So we have this issue that the business kind of people know that they can make this one cheap. It'll be acceptable. There's a distribution mode where everybody that's involved adds on a little money or a lot of money. Mm. So, you're going to make vaccines. It's going to go through the usual route. And there will be people who won't take the vaccine because they're more afraid of the needle than what they think the disease would be or what it could do to them. And, of course, it doesn't help that the Trumpites say you don't even get the disease and it's not really a bad disease. And if it's a bad disease, the Democrats or the Chinese or whatever did it. All of this misinformation. But the point is, we do have a society, many of whom will not be vaccinated. And so they have to be protected from the spread. And if the people who are vaccinated and themselves can't get the disease, still could be spreaders. 
and maybe think it's safe to be with them. I was vaccinated. I'm vaccinated for life. So I've tried every venue I can, and I'll just say, I know there are a few that are trying to make it by aerosol, non-funded by the government as far as I can tell. But I would say we need to have an aerosol or a sugar cube to get the vaccination to work. And for those, probably an attenuated virus or a virus that can infect human nasal cells and can stimulate the immune system below them might be the way to go. It's not absolutely required. I could imagine you could do the Moderna or the Pfizer modified RNA into a spray in a way they could guarantee for themselves, probably through earlier studies on other animals, that it would work that way. And that would be my big plea. Get funding to stimulate those companies or those small companies, maybe, to be able to get this because in the end, just like the sulk was succeeded by the Sabin, the injected should be succeeded by the aerosol, in my view. Now, there are a lot of people who think differently. And I'll say about my friends who are great immunologists, they got to be a great immunologist because they focused on the problem of their interest. I actually wrote a textbook of immunology and taught immunology. So I had to know everything at that time to put together. I'll just say I was a little disappointed that they didn't all jump up and say, we demand an aerosol vaccine. The government should do it. This is Susie Wiseman, and you're listening to Jacobin Radio, and I'm talking to Irv Wiseman. He's talking about COVID and vaccines, the basic science behind it, and the politics, too. Now, the biology that underlies why old people are more risk than young people. We and several other blood-forming stem cell labs, when we found we could isolate the stem cells from people or mice, and then we could take a single blood-forming stem cell and transplant it in a way that it didn't have to make blood enough to save the recipient, but where we could mark all of the daughter cells that came from the single cell. We found that in young people and young mice, we'd have a large abundance of the stem cells that can make lots of those new T and B lymphocytes. And each one of those lymphocytes is predetermined to see one or another foreign shape. And when I say foreign shape, it means that would fit in the pocket, okay? Now, it's an amazingly large number of lymphocytes you need to have to cover all the shapes the universe can bring to you, whether it's a toxin or an infection. So you need a lot of new lymphocytes coming out all the time. Each lymphocyte is pre-committed to make only one shape whether it's a T-cell with its T-cell receptor or a B-cell with the antibody. So you need, you only have one in, as I said, 100,000. 
that will work against the infection. That's fine if you're putting out millions and millions of new lymphocytes every day. And they have the property to go through the blood. And as my old mentor, Jim Gowans in Oxford show, home to the lymph nodes under your throat, the lymph nodes under your arm, the spleen in your body, the appendix, pyrus patches, and tonsils. They all have homing receptors to go there. So wherever you would get infected, you can make an immune response. Now you got all of those cells and they're going to the right places to be immunized. When we looked at old people and old mice, each single stem cell made lots of the macrophages that eat, the neutrophils that eat and kill indiscriminately something that's foreign, but have no memory have no expansion to make a better response later. Two weeks later, even though you had a macrophage that ate a bad infected cell, it doesn't remember that, so it doesn't do it any better two weeks later. So the fact that our old stem cells only make a limited number of new T and new B cells So few new T cells that most of the pathologists doing autopsies could hardly find the thymus because it wasn't getting the cells that can expand and make T cells. And they made the mistake, and it's a mistake, to say, well, the thymus is gone when you're about 40. It's not gone. Roland Scully and I showed in 1980 It's there as long as the mouse or as long as the human lives. Now, you think about it. Why would the body make lots and lots of lymphocytes when you're young and very few when you're old? Well, while this system was evolving and sort of you have to accept the possibility that evolution is real (laughs) and there is no such thing as creation science for what I'm going to tell you you would re-encounter in your little place where you lived and ate and drank, killed, whatever you were doing, you would meet those microbes over and over again. And you would develop memory T and B cells that would protect you for life. Because now you have enhanced numbers that live as long as you do. Any time in your life, that you get an infection, it's the one you had. But we invented trains, planes, and cars. Mm -hmm. And now we have coming to us horrible infections that we didn't encounter when the system was evolving. And so, for whatever reason it is, you have stem cells, blood-forming stem cells that make lots of acute granulocytes, macrophages that will stave off pneumococcal pneumonia and other acute infections, but they're not memory. And so I have to get maybe a much higher dose of influenza vaccine each year and repeats of it so that the maybe one cell I have in my whole body that's anti-influenza would finally get stimulated. And most of the time, it wouldn't. So now you have old people or aging people or immune-compromised people 
genetically or any of the anti-cancer drugs you give kill lymphocytes. So you're susceptible to these infections. When that infection goes from the nose and throat into the lung, you turn on those inflammatory antiviral things. So now you've got an infection that you can't make good lymphocytes against, and you have a massive inflammatory response. So when Gerlinda Wernig and I looked at the lungs from these patients, they had a mimic of what we call pulmonary fibrosis because the inflammation triggers the fibroblast to make a scar, a wound healing scar, but the inflammation doesn't end. So the people with this infection, if you're old, have the inflammation, but not a much of the right T and B cell immunity. Now, of course, all of that has to be tested as we go forward in a setting that you don't compromise the lives of people. But that's the basis. And we've done experiments with the people at the Rocky Mountain Lab in Hamilton, Montana, part of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, headed by Tony Fauci. Tony goes out to that lab every year. The immunologist in the lab is Kim Hazenkrug, who used to work in the lab in Great Falls, Montana, that I got my start and would come back to. Harold Varmus, David Baltimore, and I, when we talked to him in 1980, said, you shouldn't just be a technician. You should go on and get a degree. So now I'm collaborating with him. And they have all of those infectious diseases plus non-human primates where you test all of the vaccines. So we are looking at the infections. We're looking at which kind of virus you could put in. We're looking at, will you get salivary dimeric IgA with this or that vaccine? And Michal Tal in my lab also is doing that. And hopefully many other labs are. So the objective is to look at this disease and know when you go full force to stop the lethal parts of the infection. Dexamethasone dampens the inflammation. And it's cheap. You know, it's off patent for a long time. So it has turned out to be a valuable tool in the repertoire. Other anti-inflammatories also are there. But a vaccination or somebody else's antibody that a company like Regeneron or others, Eli Lilly, now makes the monoclonal antibodies, I won't even get into that, that could be transfused to you. Because the early microbe hunters who were trying to figure out microbes and how you could get around, they found that you could passively transfer serum from a horse that was immunized into a person. And if it was against the infection, it might stop the infection. Now, Horse proteins are different from ours, and so we make an immune response against it. So we have to make human monoclonal antibodies that are part of the therapeutic repertoire. But you can't make one that you put in the vein that goes to the nose. 
This is all amazing. And I just want to let everyone know you're listening to Jacobin Radio. This is Susie Wiseman. I'm speaking with my brother, Dr. Irv Wiseman, who is the director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. But we're also getting an incredible primer on the science of vaccines. And Irv, it just opens up so many questions. We don't have time to go into even half of them, but you did mention that the key now is not just to vaccinate in the arm, but also to develop the aerosols. And you also mentioned money. And so the question then becomes, you know, and I think maybe you should just lay it out once for the listeners, this whole, like, who's funding this? Is this still being done in university research labs backed by NIH and other government labs? Or is this being privately funded and how does that affect, you know, how quickly we're all going to get a vaccine that works? Okay, so I will certainly piss off a lot of people when I say pharmaceutical companies don't make discoveries anymore. They bring discoveries to commercialization and distribution. They hire people trained at universities to do that, medically trained experimentally trained in whatever area, clinical trial training, they don't pay a penny for the education of those people. So you're reliant in the U.S. government on philanthropy to schools and the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation and to some extent the um, Defense Department research initiative. And that is to fund people who have curiosity. I call it an idiot savant kind of thinking. I've cued myself of it many times. I never got great grades. I couldn't keep up with the memorizers. But there are people who can approach something and by observation, start to think about what must be going on and what could you do. So that's curiosity-based science. That's funded inadequately by the NIH. They try, but of course, they're always competing for funds. The Bayh-Dole Act of the 1980s, birch by Robert Dole, allowed patenting of NIH-funded discoveries either at the National Institutes of Health itself or in universities for them to be able to patent the discoveries of the university, even though they're paid for by the NIH, and to license it out and not send a penny back to the NIH. And so when they license it out, they get royalties back or some equity, which maybe or maybe not pays for the office that does that. But I wrote in 1994 that the Bayh-Dole Act was stupid because it gave the money incentive to university offices of technology and licensing while all of the money required to train people, pay their stipend, pay their tuition if they were undergraduates, it never got a penny for the discoveries that it funded. 
So a lot of people said, well, you don't want to turn NIH into a company. You're not turning it into a company. You can always put up a wall between the decision makers on one side and the decision on the other so that you can make sure people weren't slanting NIH funding for their own political commercial interest. So I would say right away, change the Bayh-Dole Act. Second, make it part of any licensing of anything that goes to the companies that they tithe or check off a certain fraction of the royalties that go back to the schools that educate the people who will become their doctors and their scientists. I was fishing, as you may remember, in New Zealand, talked to the guy sitting next to me who turned out to be on the board of a large farm. He says, well, what can we do for you at the university? I said, pay for the people we train for you. He says, what a great idea. I'll get you before the board. That's the last time I heard from him. And that <laughs> was three years ago. So I just, there's a lot of places here that are important to understand. So way back in 2001, when I headed a stem cell panel for the National Academies of Science, I wanted to make sure that a discovery could actually make its way to being a therapeutic. And since most people who make discoveries at universities have bought into the mantra that their curiosity is that all they should do, Nobody at the university will then try at the university to gain funds to make the discovery into something that might form something that could be usable. Just think of Derek Rossi. He's sitting there, a stem cell biologist, read that paper, thought about it, and then acted on it. Now, the biggest problem with the offices at universities of technology and licensing protected by the Bayh-Dole Act is they can't be experts in the field and they got to cover their expenses. So they want to license it out as soon as possible. And that's usually a beginning biotech. And the faculty can or cannot be involved in it. Everybody gets a day a week off to do whatever they want in medical schools and graduate schools. So you can do it that way. But you don't have the person who discovered something new in the field in the whole thinking process to develop it preclinically to lead to the Moderna vaccine or transplantable stem cells or blocking antibodies to CD47. So when I helped Bob Klein and Larry Goldstein and others write Prop 71, in 2003 and 2004, I included that the agency should have the right to fund in a competitive manner, taking a discovery through preclinical proof of principle in animals, will it work, through the usual development stages to find out how much, what dose, and in animals like non-human primates, is it safe? Is it distributed? Will it maybe do something? 
so that you can file an initial new drug application to the FDA so that you can do the first clinical trial, which is for safety alone. You give increasing doses to people. They have the disease. You hope it's going to treat them. You don't give it to anybody unless you think it's going to treat them, but you're looking at safety or as the Hippocratic Oath says, do no harm. But then right after that, as you develop it, you want to go on to the phase two trial to say, is there a modicum of efficacy, which is the second part of the Hippocratic Oath that we all took, saying, do whatever you can for your current and future patients to make sure they get the best chance to survive or overcome their disease. So those two tenets of the Hippocratic Oath are the things that should drive people. So now think about it. You make a discovery. If you're still in the old style school, the school markets it to a biotech who may or may not talk to you. They usually don't want to because they got to turn the money. They got to get something to flip it or enlarge it to a company. So they're always thinking money. So if you put in a hundred million bucks, you're going to spend 80 million in getting more money or something big. At the university funded by Prop 71 in California, there's nobody there with a profit motive. We can bring in the experts who would complement what our hospitals and our cancer centers and our other centers don't do, which we did. And you can make a little tiny mini company-like outfit that will get nothing from it but pushing the discovery to the point of, is it safe? Is it effective? Now, all of the phony stem cell companies in the world Mm -hmm. are trying to push legislation that you don't need the FDA, that you have as a person the right to choose. It's a very clever statement, the right to choose. (laughs) You haven't got a chance on earth as an individual to know what to choose. It's just a device for the companies that want to avoid FDA oversight, appropriate FDA oversight that saves lives over and over and over again. So you're going to avoid that. Why are you doing it? Make money. Everything that happens comes to that final board of directors who know they will be sued, rightfully sued, if they don't make as much money as fast as they can for their shareholders. The SEC will walk in. So what I'm talking about is a real big issue, and that is getting the people who make the money have to return a part of the money, not only for education, training, fundamental research, But to find ways, as California has experimented first, to carry the discovery with the discoverers all the way into the clinical trials if they don't get stopped on the way. And by the way, if they get stopped on the way, you save 50 to 100 million bucks for whoever you would do it. Stop it early. Now, unfortunately, at the pharmaceutical companies, Amongst the people who rise to the political top and become presidents are the people who say earlier, it won't work. So 
They're liability sensitive. They're risk sensitive. They certainly, you know, have to deal with it. And and I would not say they're doing something wrong. They're doing exactly what evolves even in communist countries. Or so-called, yeah. Yeah, so-called communist country. It's the same. I visited the place in Cuba. They do beautiful science and vaccine and cell culture. But they have their directors who say, just a sec, we need the money. We can't support this. So let's accept it for now that businesses have one function to make a profit. So don't let them get involved in the early development. Give that to the people who have the doctors, the scientists. But now you have to re-educate the scientific community. It is not a virtue to just be curious and make a discovery and throw it over the transom. Because you're probably the only person who knows that system for days, weeks, and years, and who could spot when something goes wrong in the early development, or spot something that is in the body system that you should think about in terms of a risk of a side effect. So if there's anything I accomplish in this next era of Proposition 14, it will be to make that refinement better. So there's one last point to this. And this unfortunately came out from a populist movement or person. I won't name the person, but if you think about it, when you put in a grant to the NIH or to the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, it's not what you say you're going to do that turns out to be important because nobody ends up doing what they say they're going to do with the methods they thought of that day. What you end up, you have to look at those people who perpetually in their career make discoveries that open fields. You pay the person, not the project. So NIH, therefore, and CERM Review Board has to be able to get experts who have proven that they not only made discoveries themselves and know what the process is, but who can be wise, hopefully, and learn to be wise about what you're going to bet on. But an advisor to the NIH got in who said, that's unfair. You'll have the old boy system because the experts are older. And at that time, they were boys, men. So they said, let's just do peer review. Let's take not the top 1% of all the scientists to judge grants, everybody. So at the median are people who are in science and almost certainly never had and never will make a true field-opening discovery. Mm-hmm. And you give them the right to judge all of the grants coming in on the basis of whether they think that experiment as written will work. That populist person that I brought forward to a National Academy panel when I said, why don't you get experts like the Howard Hughes Institute, like the Medical Research Council in the UK. He said that would not be fair. Then only the best would get funded, which betrayed for me for all time the danger 
of that kind of a person guiding the government grants. So since about 1992, we have peers instead of experts. Mm. They got to sign up for four years, three times a year, three days each time. They get reimbursement at about the lowest living wage you can have. So the people who do it are not only people who didn't make discovery, it's the people who have the time to do it. If you said to an expert panel, your job is for people who've been out from their training seven or more years, pick people who've shown they can pivot. When the experiment they said they do didn't work, but they still made a discovery. Look at the track record of the discoveries. Now, admittedly, for the young people, the ones who don't have a track record, you've got to do something like have them come to you and talk about their project, and then the experts bet it back and forth to see how the people think. Are they able to pivot? Are they able to carry things forward? We put all of that into CIRM in the 2004 Sometimes they followed the experts, quite often they didn't. Because the very first person who came into CIRM, I won't mention the name, I don't want to be sued, had been head of an NIH institute that had lived with this pick peers. So I know I'm saying things that are going to piss off a whole bunch of people. But you have to look at how things are, how they really are. And even though you have an ideal how they should have been, you still have to reflect how they are. I hate it that businesses have the control too early because I know they have to make a profit. I understand they have to make a profit. And if until we have a different economic way of making and distributing and advancing goods, that's what you got. But you got to give back to the universities. You got to track them with milestones. And you got to have expert reviewers that you pay industrial compensation for the time they consult. All of those things, I think, will be required to make it go forward. And I'll just make that last one the antibody we made against the don't eat me signal, which we began in the 2000s. We got our first grant from CIRM, 2010. We had mouse antibodies. We had to turn them into human antibodies. We had to test if they would be safe, effective. We had to get the dose in non-human primates. We had to write up all of the things you need to write up as if we were a drug company and file an initial new drug application to the NIH. We did it in just under four years. And the FDA said, after a month, go ahead. And the UK, MHRA, we applied to also go ahead. Now, we wanted to do part of our studies in the UK because we only had one insurance company we had to get to approve it. Every company in the US, every university that does trials, every group that has trials has rooms of people calling rooms of people at pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. companies and say, will you pay for the clinical costs other than the drug in this clinical trial. And just like the tax audit people, the first group of people are trained to say, no, deny. 
So we have developed a very expensive and inefficient bureaucracy that at least we got around that cost by doing part of the trials in the UK. The National Health Service is the only one that has to say it. And if we had a nationalized medicine or a Medicare for all, or even with Obamacare, where you have at least a large number of people where a single group says yes or no, go ahead, that would improve the cost. The total cost for us to go 2010 to the filing was around 20 to 25 million. That is no more than 10% and probably no more than 1% that companies pay to do it. We did it faster. We got the mistakes out of the way because we were working in the field that we had developed. So I think there's a lot that could go on. And now you think about the changeover in the government. Well, we won't have a Henry Azar mm-hmm. who really doesn't understand the health system. When you don't have somebody who, full of populist desire, makes us mediocre instead of excellent. So this is going to be the key. Who the new secretary, assuming he's approved, gets in to modify NIH to the way that it looks at the experiment in California to say, is there something to learn there? Irv Wiseman, I can't thank you enough for that. Not just primer on the vaccines and the science behind it, but on the politics, the money, and really a window into what needs to be done and how we should do it. And I want to thank you for spending all of that time today. Irv, I should just say, is the director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.